guest speaker. Some of you may remember him. Pastor Josh Tovey and his wife Stephanie are here with us today, and uh, they served as our youth pastor and youth pastor's wife. I don't think that's an official position of the church, but uh, we know that it's a significant position. And uh, they were there, here for a few years doing that, and then we sent them out about two and a half years ago. They started a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan called Redemption Church, yep. and they have a familiar mission statement, connecting people to Jesus for life change. Okay which is ours if you're a guest and you didn't know that. It's the same one. And so having Josh here today is like having a, a little brother, really, as far as age difference and whatnot, but a, a son in the faith. You know, some of you are parents, and you send your kids out, and you don't want them to go, but then at the time that it happens, it feels right. And uh, we love Josh and are thankful for him being around, but are really excited as he serves really as an extension of Southbridge in Grand Rapids, yeah. Michigan. And they've seen God do some great work there, and he'll share some of that with you as he gets started in, in preaching the word this morning. But I want to pray for him and pray for us, uh, just that God speaks to our hearts as he opens the word this morning. So let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for Pastor Josh being here with us today. And I pray for Redemption Church as he's away from them, as they meet today, God, that your word would just go forth and uh, that they would... Um, just be blessed for their generosity in sharing their pastor with us today. And uh, God, I pray as he opens the word for us this morning that our hearts and our minds would be open to what you have to say to us. I pray that you'd speak into our lives in a way uh, that you haven't all week this week. I pray that you would transform us and some of us that spend time with you in the word and praying and asking you to speak to us. I pray you'd do it now. And some people maybe haven't done that, maybe have never done that, that you draw them to you and show them the love of, of you. Show them the love of your son Jesus through the gospel. I pray for Josh, you just anoint his lips for this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be here with you this morning, and uh, it's nice out. The sun's out in Michigan, so people like to be outside here. I got off the plane, and I'm like, it's miserable here. <laughs> like, it is, it, is, it is very, very hot. Well, we're so pumped to be here, and uh, we obviously have a relational connection, but also deeper than that, a connection through Jesus as we carry out uh, the same mission of connecting people to Jesus for life change in Grand Rapids, and uh, We've seen the Lord do some mighty things. We've had the privilege in our just under two and a half years of existence, uh, baptizing 50 people, and uh, so we're celebrating that, and uh, it's been awesome. I think we have uh, 285 people serving on a team. Uh, we, we, the Lord's just been doing a lot of great things, and so we've been really excited. People are excited about our mission. People are excited about why we exist and why we're there, and so that is um, in part to you as well and uh, our experience here on the team at Southbridge, and so uh, it's an honor to be here with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning, Luke chapter 15, and so uh, as you turn there, I want you to think through how many presidential elections have taken place uh, during your life. I think I've had nine in my 35 years, almost 36 years of living, uh, nine different presidential elections, and as I process uh, the, the presidential elections, and I think through uh, all the different slogans that have existed during those times, I, all one word always comes to mind, and uh, that is the word change, right? Like every person who ever runs for president is running because they believe some kind of change needs to happen in our country. And so when I think back to even uh, 2000, or not, sorry, 1992 with uh, President Bill Clinton, his slogan was, it's time to change America. In 2004, George W. Bush, his slogan was, a safer world and a more, hope, a more hopeful America. What was he hoping for? He was, he was hoping for change, right? That's something that he, with his team, could, could pull forth a change that would make America great or better again. And so when I think through 2008, President Barack Obama, his slogan was, a change that we need. And President Trump's slogan, right, was make America great 
great again. Every presidential slogan seems to be tied to some kind of change. Listen, our big idea this morning is this, is the Father's invading grace changes everything. The Father's invading grace changes everything. And so what does it mean for grace to change everything? It literally means it's going to come in our life, it's going to take over, conquer, capture, win, and gain. And why does grace change everything? The answer is because of the source of grace, right? Who it is that we receive the grace from is the reason and the only reason that things change. So that means that grace is ultimately tied to all things Jesus. And we know that grace invaded uh, this world the moment that Christ entered it. And we know that when he went to the cross to die in our sin at that point, it could change everything about us. Please know this, that nothing in your life will stay the same if you've experienced grace. And so what is grace? Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. And so today we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son, all right? And many of you have heard this story. You probably know something about the story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard some kind of story related to this. But what is a parable? Because that's important to know. A parable is a story that illustrates a profound truth a story that illustrates a profound truth. And so every time that Jesus was with people, he's living in real life, having real conversations. And so he would speak in parables and stories to illustrate something about himself, to illustrate something profound, something life-giving and something life-changing. And so we're gonna see that the source of grace in the beginning of Luke chapter 15, he's changing out, hanging out with those who desperately need his grace. Let's look at it. Luke 15, verse one and two, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to Jesus. Listen, tax collectors were employees of Rome to carry out uh, Rome's uh, power. And so it helped keep all the people calm. And what Rome would do or what the tax collector would do is he would tax people above and beyond what Rome required. Therefore, people did not like tax collectors. No one really likes anyone who takes advantage of them, right? Like that's normal in everyday life. Like if someone's taken advantage of you, that relationship's not going to last very long. And so the same is true here with uh, the tax collectors. But we also see this truth, that sinners were also hanging out with Jesus. Now, sinners in the Bible times was actually a class of people. It was the cripple, it was the prostitutes, it was the diseased. And so they're hanging out with Jesus because they're investigating who this Jesus is and what this Jesus is proclaiming. Like what is his message? But who else was around Jesus? You see it in verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Who else was around the Pharisees were? Listen, can I, just so we're all on the same page, Pharisees are better than me and you. Like, they just are. Like, they had more Bible memorized. They were better prayers than we, we were. The spiritual disciplines were probably more mastered for them. They had a lot of the Bible all, all memorized. They could speak it whenever they wanted. But we also see this about the scribes in this verse, if you look at it. It says, the Pharisees and the scribes, it says that they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the word grumble means to complain. Ever complained before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So something in your life isn't going how you want, something's not going well, something you're unsatisfied with an outcome of something, and what do we do, right? We're going to grumble, we're going to complain. Maybe you get annoyed, you get displeased by something, and so what that means is that we can all relate with the Pharisees here. 
But for the Pharisees, the grumbling actually means to protest. Remember when President Trump took office, right? There was protests that were taking place all around our country. They were protesting. They were ultimately grumbling. They didn't like the outcome that the people voted. And so here we see the Pharisees, they're grumbling. What are they grumbling about? They're grumbling about Jesus. They're grumbling that this man would dare eat with sinners and with tax collectors. Like they're the worst people of all time. Man, they're protesting. Wouldn't God just want to eat with us, the people who seem to have it all together? Because the Pharisees view themselves as better. And they view themselves as better than tax collectors and sinners because they compare themselves to the tax collectors and the sinners. And here's the thing about comparison. Comparison always leads to discontentment. Always leads to discontentment. No matter what you do in your life, compare anything you want to someone else. At some point, it's going to lead to discontentment. And that's exactly what's happening here for the Pharisees. But here's what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus, the Father, actually has a heart for all people. And so Jesus, in this setting, with the tax collectors, with the scribes, with the Pharisees, he's going to communicate this amazing truth about the prodigal son because it relates to everybody who is around him. You see, he tells the story of the prodigal so the tax collectors and the sinners have someone to relate with. He tells the story of the prodigal and the older brother so the Pharisees can relate to the story. And here's the crazy part about the prodigal son and the older brother that are represented in the stories that both are represented in this room this morning. Prodigals and older brothers who would view themselves as ultimately as Pharisees. And so the the goal this morning is for us just to gaze our eyes upon the grace of the Father and allow him to change our heart and allow him to speak truth into our hearts. And that is incredibly important. So whether you are here this morning and you view yourself as a terrible sinner, or you are here and you view yourself as a perfect performing saint, this message is for you. All right, it is for you. And so as we jump into the story in Luke chapter 15, we must remember this about the prodigal, because people get this wrong all the time, that the point of the story is not the prodigal. The hero of the story is not the prodigal. The point of the story is not the older brother. The hero of the story is not the older brother. The point of the story is the father and how he interacts so kindly and so compassionately and so graciously, right, with both of his sons. And so our goal is to gaze upon that this morning. The father's invading grace, it literally changes everything. And so here's the first thing we're going to see about the father's heart is that the father is an unobligated giver. Let's look at verse 11 together. Starting in verse 11, it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Amazing story, right? So here we have this younger brother, and check out what he says. Hey, Dad, give me what you owe me. Give me what I want. I find it interesting that the younger son has the guts to come to his old, to his father and actually demand of him that he give him what he wants. Isn't that amazing? If I'm the father, I'm highly insulted <laughs> by what my son is saying to me. Like, you don't talk to me like that. No one in my life talks like that if you're this father. But here's the younger son opening up his big mouth, making a huge demand of his father, highly insulting his father. And literally he's saying to his dad this, I can care less about you. I just want your stuff. And so I'm here to collect it. It's time for you to give it to me. I don't know about you, but if I would have talked to my dad that way when I was a kid, it would not have gone well for me. Yeah, wouldn't have gone well at all. But what is the father's response to his son? It tells us in verse 12 that he divided up the property and gave it to him, even though he owed him nothing. He could have said no. He divided up the property and he gives it to him. Isn't it true that our heavenly father always allows us to make our own choices? 
And the heavenly father here, the, the, the father in the story, he allows his son to make the choice that he wants to make. Why? Because even in giving what he's going to give to his son, his property, his, the inheritance that is his, the father knows this, that I'm going to use that inheritance to bring my son to the end of himself. That the father works through everything. You see, what the son didn't realize is that everything that he wanted and everything that he desired, he already had in his father. He didn't need anything else. But he didn't understand that. He didn't embrace that truth. And so the older father is going to help usher in that idea by giving him exactly what he wants. And hopefully the goal with the son ending up in a place where he's going to realize, man, I really do need the father. And so this son is about to pursue everything that the world has to offer. And here's what we're going to see. When we pursue the things of the world, it only leads to disappointment, to dissatisfaction, and to frustration. So look at verse 13. And it says this, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And what did he do? He squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And so the son packs his bags. He's ready to go. He thinks he has life all figured out and he heads out on his journey. But at the end of verse 13, it tells us that after he had spent everything, right, in reckless living. He squandered everything. I had to hurt his confidence just a bit, didn't it? But then it says this, right, he spent everything and all of a sudden a famine arose. Listen, I think that famine is very timely by the Lord. As the father tells the story, that, that's a key component. Yeah, go spend everything, squander everything I gave you. And by the way, in that moment, a famine arose. Listen, the Lord's gonna use whatever he has to do to bring you to the end of yourself. Have I said that yet? I don't know if you saw this, but I think it was in March. Uh, McDonald's tweeted out some amazing news. And McDonald's said this, Today that we've announced that by mid-2018, all quarter-pound burgers at the majority of our restaurants will be, will be cooked with, with fresh beef. Amazing, right? So what they're saying is this, this, if you want to get a fresh burger, it will be possible at most of the restaurants in McDonald's in the future, right? Pretty amazing news for them. They're excited about it. They tweeted it out. But then Wendy's, whoever handles Wendy's Twitter is brilliant. Wendy's tweeted back at McDonald's and said this, so you'll still use frozen beef in most of your burgers and all of your restaurants asking for a friend, <laughs> right? Like this is awesome, right? This is incredible. Because McDonald's is attempting to make some good news known. Hey world, we've sold over a billion burgers, whether you like them or not, but hey, just in case you don't like it, you might like this one. We're gonna serve a fresh patty. And Wendy's is like, you're a loser, you know? You're a loser. But what I see when I think about McDonald's, I think I see McDonald's theology on full display in the story of the prodigal son. And some can relate with this and some can't. I learned this last service. But sometimes in our life, any time in our life, let me say that, there's been times in our life when, when uh, we desire things like McDonald's to eat. And so you go to McDonald's, you get a meal, you, you get a burger, you get a fry, you get their Coke. I'm, I'm a Pepsi guy, but their Coke is like, there's a drug in there. Like it's, it's, it's the best Coke on the planet, all right? You go and you get it and you start eating, you eat those fries, you drink, eat that burger, you drink that Coke, and about halfway through, what do you feel like? You feel miserable, right? It's the slogan that I live, I live by often. There's always time for one more bad decision, right? And that's what that is, right? 
It's, it's, it's gross. Like we feel gross. We do not feel good at all. And the same is actually true with sin. Isn't it true that sin always looks appetizing, inviting, flavorful, tasty, tempting, but we get it and we find this is not exactly what I thought it was? That sin looks incredible when we choose it, but doesn't it always seem to lead to regret? Like I can never think back in my life a time that I actually chose sin and later was glad that I made that choice. Every single time I've experienced this thing called regret. But here's what's true for the prodigal. It tells us the end of verse 16, or the end of verse 14, that he began to be in need. Please know this, the prodigal was still not ready to own up to his mess. He was still very prideful here. And so what does he do? He, he says, you know what, man? I know I squandered my dad's inheritance, but I don't need to go back to my dad. I can do this on my own. I can figure it out all by myself. And so he hires himself out to one of the citizens of the land, and he's working with the pigs. And we find him getting to a spot where he's so hungry because of the famine. He's not eating anything, and he's desiring the food that the pigs are eating. And we get this amazing phrase at the end of verse 16, and it says, no one gave him anything. What was the younger son looking for? Listen, he was looking for grace. Here's the thing, though. Grace only comes from the Father. And he abandoned that. He's out pursuing the world. He's out looking for whatever he can find that will fill this void in his heart and in his life. And he squandered the inheritance, and now he's stuck working a job that he'd never thought in his life as a, as a son of his father that he'd have to work a job like this. And he's realizing he doesn't get enough money to even eat, and he's desiring what he's feeding the very pigs. Isn't it true that sin always blinds us from the goodness of the Father? Look at verse 17. It says this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I love the phrase, when he came to himself. Literally, there's this switch going off in his head where he's saying, man, my pride is literally getting me nowhere. And so why am I here? I'm here because of the poor choices that I have made. And so he's learning this truth, that there's not much glory to be had in living for yourself, because where you're going to find yourself is desperate, isolated, and always desiring more. Why eat like a pig when I can at least eat like a servant in my father's house? And we see this in verse 18. I will rise, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the truth is actually starting to break through. He's like, man, the servants at my dad's house, they get to eat really well. Maybe I can go and I can work that out. Why perish with hunger? Isn't it true that the truth of, the truth of God actually humbles us at times? And we're seeing this, that when we choose to live our life, when we attempt to live our life, to exalt ourselves, it always ends up putting us in a position where we've exhausted ourselves. When you choose to live your life, attempt to live your life to exalt, exalt yourself, you will always and are only end up being exhausted by all that you've done. And so what we're seeing is that the Father in his grace, he allows us to exhaust ourselves. And we're seeing this truth for the, for the younger son is that he's starting to get this road, walk this road of repentance. He says, I will go to my Father. He's like ready to own up. He's ready to take this huge step. He's saying, I will make it right. And this is incredible humility. Remember this, that the truth always comes from the Father and repentance always leads to the Father. That what he was now starving for could actually only be found under the reign of his own dad. <laughs> I need to get back to him. I will rise. I will own up. And so we see him doing this. He's developing a walk of repentance. Ever been there before? 
where it's like, man, I really, I got some things to work on, God. And so you, you start processing what needs to be confessed, what needs to be said, what it is that you need to own up to. And this is exactly what he is doing here. But here is the truth. The father owes him nothing. He's an, an unobligated giver. He doesn't have to give him anything. But this is what we're going to see, that the father's invading grace changes everything. And so, first of all, the father isn't an unobligated giver. Secondly, the father offers unconditional acceptance. Look at verse 20. It says, and he rose and he came to his father. That's an amazing phrase. He rose and he came to his father. Like he's literally working up just the nerve to be to go and confess to his dad. He's probably anticipating that his father's going to go off on him and get all up in his grill and in his face. And he's like, in spite of that, I'm going to go and, and I'm going to be humble and I'm going to own up to my dad. He realizes he's hopeless, he's helpless, and there's nowhere else to run. And the end of verse 20 it says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Like, wait a second. What is happening here in this text? It says, well, the father saw him. So how did he see him? Well, most likely it is believed to be that he would be on the top of his roof every single day, overlooking the horizon in every direction, waiting for the return of his son, looking and staring and gazing upon the horizon, hoping that today will be the day that my son will return, that my son will come home. And he sees him. He sees him from a distance. He's ready, which means that his light outside, if he can see him, therefore the marketplace in the village would be very busy with people doing their everyday normal jobs. What happens when the father sees him? Do you catch all the verbs? He saw him and it says he felt compassion. Pastor Scott's always defined compassion as when someone's pain hurts your heart. And that's what the father's saying. He can see his son. He see it doesn't look like he's in a good spot. And he's like, man, that, what he's experiencing right now is actually hurting my heart. Ever been there before in your life? Where someone's pain? Maybe your, your kid's pain, your spouse's pain, a friend's pain. It hurts your heart. And, and when we see this truth for the father is that compassion always compels action. And so what action did the father take? Well, it tells us that he ran to him. I love this because most of the time in this day, masters aren't running anywhere, right? They're making demands, right? Bring me what I want. I'm not going to be going. I'm not going to be running. But here we see the father, he, he runs after his son. Literally, he runs down the steps, out of his house, through the family gate, by all of his servants, all the way through the village, through the marketplace, all the way out to where his son is so he can meet him. And why does he do that? Because he wants to be the first to actually meet and see his son. And we see this amazing truth about the gospel that the father is the initiator. He initiates it. He saw him, he felt full compassion, he ran, he embraced, he kissed. I feel like he tackled them, right? I'm so excited to see you. Then verse 21 tells us this. It's the son's turn to speak. And it says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Think about this. The son's been rehearsing this speech. He's been rehearsing these two sentences here, right? These two things that he wants to own, these two things that he wants to confess, these two things that he wants to make right, and now comes the time to actually share it and communicate it, and he does it with clarity and boldness. He says, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Amazing. Can you see his posture while he's given his speech? Do you think his head is up high? He's like, yeah, what's up, Dad? I just want to let you know I ran through all your money, so if you give me some more, I'll be on my way. No, 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 I think his 
head is bowed over. His shoulders are shrugged. He's standing there in guilt and shame. He's been humbled by his poor choices. And he says, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See, what's amazing about the son's interaction with the father is that the son wants to have a conversation about his value to his dad. He's looking through the lens of his failure to determine how his son or how his dad should respond. He's looking through the lens of his defeat to determine how his dad should react. And so how does his dad respond? How does his dad react? In verse 22, if you take a look at it, it says this, For the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And so what does the father do? The father cuts him off mid-speech. Just stop talking. Stop talking. We're not going to do this right now. By the way, what do you think the Pharisees were waiting for Jesus to tell? That what the father would do? Remember, they're sitting listening to the story. So Jesus says, the son comes home. He owns up, but then the father, they're like, yeah, here it comes, right? Yeah, 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 tell us that next part, right? Because the father's going to pounce on him. He's going to look right at his face and you are worthless to me. You're an idiot. Get out of my face. I can't stand you. Is that what the father does? Is he scorn him? Now, what we see here is that the father humbles himself to his son. The father forgives The father separates his son's sin from himself. And by granting forgiveness, the father's literally refusing to bring up his son's past. But in reality, remember this, for forgiveness to be granted, sin must be dealt with. And that is exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross for you and I, right? He went to the cross. He died for our sin. He rose again, came out of the grave, and now he reigns as the conquering king victoriously on his throne, right? That is where he is. But here's what's true for the prodigal, is the father is the only one who can deal with his shame and his guilt. And so I love what the father does. The father addresses his son's posture and his guilt head on. The father erases the son's past while all at the same time giving him a future. And how does he erase his son's past? How does he give him a future? He orders his servant in the verse, right? Go get the what robe? The best robe. Go get the best robe and bring it and, and put it on him. And what's so the big deal about the robe? Listen, the father's saying, the clothes that you're wearing, the shame and guilt, the dirty, the muddy, the, the pig infested, you stink, you're, you look awful, we're taking that off and we're putting on the best robe. The very, very best that I have to offer. You see, here's the truth. A forgiven son cannot wear dirty clothes, but he wears the best. Isn't it interesting that the father did not make his son make the whole walk all the way home, get himself cleaned up before he would interact with him? That the father dealt with it right there, right on the spot, right in that moment. He met him there to deal with it. He's like, here's my gift to you. It is a robe of honor. Here's the thing, son. Your shame will remind you of your past. These dirty clothes, they're going to remind you of your past. But what I want you to remember is all that you are. Here's the robe. You are what I say about you. And so he gives him a robe. Secondly, he gives him, he gives him a ring. And this ring is a, a symbol of a f- authority. And it's almost like the father, in my mind, is, is grabbing and pushing up the shoulders of the son and grabbing the head that has been shrugged over and is looking right at him and saying, you are not a servant to me. You are my son. You are mine. You are all that I say about you. And then he gives him a pair of shoes. And in my mind, he's giving him the latest pair of Jordans. And he says, let's celebrate. Kill the special calf. 
for my son who once was dead is, is now alive. You see, what's happening here, this is this amazing thing called grace. Grace is where we receive the riches of God by doing nothing. This is what's taking place right here. And notice this, what if, what if right, what did the son do to receive all of this from the father? The robe, the ring, the shoes, eliminating the past, guaranteeing a position now in his family, guaranteeing a, a future inheritance. What did, what did he do? Listen, he did nothing. This is all out of the kindness and full compassion of the father. What would have happened if the father did not run out to meet his son, but made his son take the long journey to him? What would have happened if the son would have had to walk through the village in the middle of the day with everybody in the village knowing exactly who he is and whose, whose son he is and exactly what he's been doing? Smelly, stinky, all dirty, walk through the village, walk through the family gate, walk by all the servants, walk up to the roof on his father's house as his father sits there waiting to embarrass him in front of everybody. That's not what happened. Isn't it so true? The father put his running shoes on and he blitzed all the way to his own son to deal with it right out, way far away from the family, away from the village, to deal with all the mess, all the shame, just an interaction between him and his son. No one else was seeing, no one else was paying attention so that when they walked home, they could walk to the village, they could walk by the servants, they could walk to the family gate and the son proclaiming the whole time with his arm around his son, this is my son. My son is home. My son, he, he's home, everybody. Look at him. He's back. He's back here with me and the family. Man, do I love him. He is mine. I'm proud of him. Is this not exactly how we should come to Jesus? You see, so often we think we need to clean ourselves up before we come to Christ. Listen, we need Christ because we need to be cleaned up. <laughs> This is the gospel. You have no need for the gospel if you're unwilling to not own your mess. The gospel is about you coming and laying it at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I am stuck. I'm in a horrible spot. Can you anyway, can you salvage this? Can you redeem me? Can you save me? You see, the Father gives him full forgiveness, even though what he deserved was the full weight of his wrath, right? And remember who Jesus is telling the story to again? I'm sure the scribes and the Pharisees, they were furious, right? Like this is scandalous to them that God would dare, the Father would dare do something. This is shocking. This is offensive to them. But to the tax collectors and the sinners, those crippled, those prostitutes, those people that were really struggling with life, they're saying, wait, wait a second. You're, you're talking about hope. You're talking about hope. And the Pharisees were bothered that the sinners would hear hope. What is the response of the older brother? Look at verse 25 with me. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. I love what's happening here, because it's going to be amazing what the father's going to do. But we see the older brother. He hears about his brother coming home. He's not interested in celebrating. And the result is when he hears the fattened calf has been killed for this meal, what does he do? Verse 28, it says this, that he's angry. He's displeased. He's incredibly, incredibly frustrated. And why is he angry? Why is he displeased? Because of grace. You see, he doesn't, 
the older brother view himself as needing grace. Grace is worthless to a Pharisee, and this is about what is right. He's demanding justice, and because of that, his anger led to action, where he refuses to come in and celebrate what his father is doing for his son. So what does the father do? Did you catch it? In verse 28, it says, he went out to his son to entreat him. He goes to his older son, too. Please, please come inside. All that I have is yours. The father was begging him, but here's the truth with the older brother. He was not interested in relationship with the father. And verse 29, the son, the older son, has some things he would like to say to his dad. And he said this, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commandments, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, not my brother, when the son of yours who has devoured your, devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fat and calf for him, exclamation point. <laughs> He's screaming. He's angry. Dad, I have a few choice words for you, and I love that he uses absolutes in his communication. Did you catch it? Like, phrases like, you never, or I always, I never disobey, you never give me a young goat that I can celebrate, but this loser son of yours comes home who's wasted all your money on prostitutes, and you're gonna kill the fat and calf for him, for this guy? I feel like the older brother is screaming in his dad's face. And he's saying this, I don't want you. I want your stuff. And he wants his dad to know that he's been keeping score. And he doesn't see that he has a need for the father, but he does desire his father's stuff. He goes, so dad, let me tell you what the score is. Here's the thing, dad. Uh, I've never slept with a prostitute. Check, your younger son did that. I never asked for my inheritance early. Check, yeah, but your younger, your younger son, he did that. I've been obedient. Check, but your younger son, he's been a mess. I followed all your rules. Check, but your younger son, he's, he's not done anything right. You see, dad, I'm up four to zero. What's amazing to me is that both brothers in their interaction with the father wanted to decide how their father should respond and both were wrong. Neither one of them were right. So often we want to decide our own worth. Both the younger son and the older son wanted to have a, a talk with their dad about their worth and they both had an opinion about it. Listen, what if I told you this morning that your worth and your value is not determined by you? What if I told you this morning that your worth and your value in the Lord's eyes was, was not determined by your failure or your success? What if your worth or your value was not determined by your shame or your guilt or, hear me, your obedience? What if all that you are was determined by Jesus dying on the cross for you? What if your value was found in that moment? What if your worth was found in all that Christ has done for you? Because how would grace change everything right now in your life if you realize that everything that you desire and want could not be won or lost by what you do or don't do? And what was the father saying to both sons? His interaction with his younger son, his interaction with his older son, he was simply saying this, you are worthy because I am worthy. That your worst son has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with me. Younger son, here's a robe, here's a ring, here's the Jordans. Older son, please come inside. It is time to celebrate. Your value is found in what I say about you. And think about how that phrase should create incredible freedom. It should change everything about us. Because the father is saying that your value is not found in anything that you do. It's not found in any role that you carry out. It's not found in your failure. It's not found in your success. And it's not found in your obedience. 
The Father's invading grace changes everything. But he's an unobligated giver. He's not required to give anything. But the Father grants unconditional acceptance. And lastly, we'll see this. The Father reaches an undeserving people. Look at verse uh, 32 with me. It says this. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice this truth that is very glaring in this text. That the, fathers offer, the father offers grace to both brothers, but neither one of them deserve it. Right? The father gives grace to the younger brother, and he offers grace to the older brother. He begs the older brother, please come inside and, and partake of all that is yours. It's all you can eat steak night, son. Whatever you want, we have it. They'll grill it exactly how you want it. You can keep going up as much as you want. But what does the other older brother do? He never goes inside. You see, don't miss this point, that both the younger son and the older son, they, they have an opinion about their worth to their dad. And they both view their relationship with their dad in different ways. You see, the, the younger son, the one who's messed up, who's made a ton of mistakes in his past, has a past of shame and guilt and prostitution and squandering his, his dad's inheritance and everything his dad gave him. He views himself as a son because he's experienced grace. But the older brother, he views himself as a soldier. The younger brother views himself because he's, as a son because he's experienced it. The older brother's like, man, I'm a soldier because I've, I've followed the rules. I've done exactly what you've asked me to do. The younger brother's been changed by grace. The older brother's offended by grace. Isn't it true that grace offends us on the highest level when we believe that God owes us? Grace offends us on the highest level when you can say to God, God, I've been obedient and this is how you're going to pay me? For the older son, it was all about the rules. Father, I have kept the rules. Your, young, your, your other son, who's a loser, has broken them. And because I obey, I deserve the best. And because he did naughty things, he deserves your wrath. The younger brother is a rule breaker. The older brother is a rule follower. Rule followers are never gracious. The older brother, right, he doesn't even see the own darkness in his heart. Why? Because he thinks that he's perfect. He thinks that he's accomplished perfection through the law. He believes that if I do the right things, then I'm going to get what I want from my father. He doesn't understand that the father's already offering him everything that he has without him doing anything. See, his view, on the, his view on this is like, man, if I obey the law, then I will get grace. The problem with that is this amazing thing called the gospel. Listen, those who understand grace celebrate what God is doing. And so why is this celebration in verse 32, taking place. It says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, is alive, and is lost, and is found. Please know this, that the celebration's not just taking place because of the, old, the younger brother coming home and taking that long walk of repentance and owning up his sin. It's happening because the father is giving gracious redemption to both of his sons. He's offering it both to them. And they're unwilling. The older son is unwilling to listen. He's unwilling to come inside and partake of all that the father wants to give him in his goodness, in his graciousness. He's like, I don't want any of that. I don't want nothing to do with that. This is not about what the son has done. This is about what the father is doing. And I feel like if I'm the Pharisee and I'm sitting there back to chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, and I hear Jesus telling this story, the Pharisees were so seriously wrong that the very religion that they counted on to earn themselves eternal life would actually spell their destruction. 
Literally, the Father, Jesus, is saying to the Pharisees, moralism is deadly, legalism is deadly, and in that moment, in that story, the Father is calling all soldiers home. You see, they believe, man, if I've been a good boy, then I have a seat at the table. That's the Pharisees' view. The tax collectors and sinners, they've been, they're horrible people. Therefore, they don't belong at the table, but Jesus, you and I, I should be there because I'm like you. I'm a good dude. Surely we are better than them. Listen, what if your spot at the table is not related to how good you've been or how bad you've been, but, but, but about how great Jesus is? Amen. You see, both were, both were offered grace, but only one experienced reconciliation. One experienced full forgiveness. One experienced full privileges. And I love this for the younger son of, did you catch this? There's no waiting of time. There's no passing of time. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no test to take. It was, you're in. Right? There's no we're not playing games here, son. You're in. You're my son. You have all that I all that I have is yours. You're back in. Let's do this. And why is that that way? Because the Father's grace changes everything. Here's what I know to be true: that in this room this morning, there are prodigal sons and there are Pharisees. And I'm ashamed to admit that I'm a recovering Pharisee. That's my own heart. That's my own heart. So the father is actually, through the story of the prodigal son, as we look at his conversation with both of his sons, the father literally is calling all sons and all soldiers home. <laughs> so because the father's grace changes everything, he's calling every rebellious son and all the perfect performing saints home. And so I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ this morning. Maybe you're walking here this morning, you don't even know much about Jesus. You may be coming here with a lot of shame and guilt, a lot of poor choices. Please know this, that nothing is more powerful than the truth of the gospel. That everyone in here who knows Christ, it's not because of what they brought to the table, it's because of how great Jesus is. Amen. That he loves us in our mess. He's willing to meet us right in it. Just so you know, he already became it. It's already done. He already paid for it. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a Pharisee. Right? Everything's right and wrong, right and wrong, right and wrong. And so because of that, you're planning on standing before Jesus someday and saying, uh, look at all that I did. The danger in that is Jesus could say, I never knew you. Because when you stand before Christ, we don't talk about us, we talk about him. Just <laughs> let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you for your kindness towards us. I want to thank you for your compassion and your love. Lord, you're incredibly patient with us. You're patient with us in our sinfulness, and you're patient with us in our achievements when we think that we've done it. And so, Lord, I want to pray that your grace will invade the shame and the guilt in this room this morning, that you will invade people's lives and let them know uh, all that you are offering them, that they are what you say about them. But I want to pray for the Pharisee in the room, that your grace will invade their life and they will realize there's nothing I can do to earn this grace. It's actually not based on me, but it's based on how good that you are, Lord. And so I pray that we can leave this place this morning changed forever because of coming in contact with your amazing son. In your name, amen.